Show me the science with Professor Luke O'Neill. Hello, Luke O'Neill here and welcome to my Show Me The Science podcast. This is number 140 something, so we're still here, isn't it great? So this week, I'm going to talk about something I came across literally two days ago and I'm always looking out for things. People ask me actually, how do I do it, you know? I'm always looking for stuff that might be interesting in the podcast and I keep coming across things, you know? And then I think, oh, will that work or will it not? Will it be interesting? And I dig into some of them and I realise not that boring. Or secondly, the science is crap behind them. And I remember, show me the science is all about giving you what I think is the best science around this particular topic. And this one is all about the science of mental exhaustion, right? Now you might think, oh God, it's a bit obvious and so on. But there's been a breakthrough. And as ever, I, I give stuff, the great thing about science is it keeps making new discoveries all the time and this is a good example there's been a breakthrough in understanding mental exhaustion now we all feel mentally exhausted and it can really be debilitating for some people and it's been an interesting area like you know when we when you physically do things you get tired don't you your muscles obviously get a bit tired and it's been a bit controversial does the brain get tired if you think too hard does your brain then say, hang on, I'm feeling very tired now, I need to take a rest. And even though it might seem like it should be the case, the evidence has been a bit lacking and whether it's actually a real thing or not is the next thing that people have discussed. But this breakthrough, this recent stuff does suggest it's a real thing. If you think very hard about something, you will get mental fatigue. And now what's going on in the brain, there's been some new insights into that. And it's very much in my uh, hat as a biochemist, actually. You know, and I'm a biochemist originally, who then became an immunologist. And I look at the biochemistry of the immune system. This is all about metabolism and about glucose, as I'll explain in a minute. Now, we know, as I say, if you're running, you will get tired, right? And it's an interesting question anyway. And this article I read about this said, why do we get tired? Like, let's say you're running on a treadmill and you keep getting fed nutrients because you're not run forever. Like one reason for fatigue is you run out of nutrients and there's no more glucose to burn and therefore, you know, you suffer fatigue. But what if you kept giving someone glucose? Could they run forever? It looks like it's not the case. You're meant to take rests because if you keep running, you'll damage the muscle. So feeling fatigue after exercise is an evolved process, they think to allow you to rest and repair. Because when you use your muscles, you get what are called micro tears in your muscles. This is well known. And those micro tears need to be fixed. So therefore you go and have a rest and now the micro tears can be fixed and the muscle is restored, you know? So the notion of getting tired after exercise is a very clear thing, really. It is to do with nutrients being burned partly. And the trigger might well be say you're burning all your glycogen, which is the key source of glucose in your body, or you're burning certain fats, and the body can sense the fat reserves going down, and then you begin, you have less fuel in the engine, as it were, to treat the glucose and the fat like petrol, I suppose. And engines won't work without their fuel. And that's one reason why you begin to feel fatigue. It's not the only reason though. And as I say, if you keep feeding, you will eventually feel fatigue anyway. So there's more going on than just using up all the petrol. The machine, maybe the engine is half full, and then you still feel the fatigue, you see, is the idea here overall. Um, and there are some people, though, mind you, who can run and run endless marathons, and they might have a slightly different physiology, I guess. But overall, one reason will be the burning of fuels, but then secondly, there's something else going on that makes you feel fatigued that gets you to stop. So they wondered then, getting onto the crux of the matter, when you think very hard, is your brain burning more glucose? Now, they've known for quite a while, biochemists, that even though your brain is only 2% of your total body weight, it burns 20% of the glucose. So if you drink a bottle of LucasAid, who are not our sponsors, I hasten to add, I'm just mentioning them randomly. If you drink a bottle of LucasAid, 20% of that LucasAid is burned in your brain. So we've known for quite a while, those neurons in your brain are very metabolically active. 
they're fizzing away in your brain. And all those neurons are firing and they're controlling everything, your thoughts, obviously, but they're also controlling your muscles and your heart and all kinds of things. So they have a big appetite for glucose. And they're burning the glucose as a source of fuel, of course, to be able to fuel all these events. And of course, what's happening is the energy in the glucose, which remember originates in the sun. This is uh, biochemistry 101 here. The sun shines, the energy in sunlight is captured in the form of carbohydrates, glucose being a carbohydrate. We eat the glucose and the energy then in the glucose is used to make the energy currency of all life and that is a molecule called ATP. And ATP is where the energy ends up from sunlight incredibly. And I think in, in my view, this is easily as exciting as genetics. We, we love genes and DNA and all kinds of things. But this discovery of ATP was a huge discovery for life. All energy on Earth is in the form of ATP. Most, that's an exaggeration, most energy on Earth is in the form of ATP. So therefore, uh, it's a really important molecule. And remember, as I said, the energy flows through the glucose molecule, or fats as well, into this ATP molecule. And it's the ATP then that gets burned in your muscles, say, as a source of energy. And that's a standard biochemical thing. So in the brain, you need loads of ATP to fuel all the various activities in the brain. The source is glucose and fats, and you make lots of ATP in that way. So the 20% consumption then is to make the ATP, basically, to fuel all these events. There's a second function though of glucose in the brain, and that is it can be used as a building block for neurotransmitters. Now remember, the brain is full of these neurotransmitters, dopamine, glycine, glutamate, all these things. And glutamate is made from glucose. So glucose is a building block then for some neurotransmitters as well. So you get two for the price of one in glucose, you're generating ATP as the energy source and you're making some of the key neurochemicals that allow your brain to work. And this has been known for, for quite a while now, what I've described there, the function of glucose in the brain. The brain having a big appetite to burn the glucose and to make the ATP and to make the neurotransmitters very important. Now, what's the breakthrough though, right? Well, first of all, you do need glucose and if you burn the glucose, you will begin to feel mental fatigue. And they made a mouse, incredibly, which had neurons which couldn't take up glucose. So they could selectively stop the ability of the neuron to take up the fuel, as it were. You're blocking the pipe, basically, into the brain here. And the glucose transporters, there's these things called transporters on the membrane of the neuron, and they pump the glucose from your diet into the neuron. If you knock out those glucose transporters, you can't learn, and you have no memory. This is in mice, obviously, other than humans. So you can delete the glucose transporter specifically just from neurons, and now the mouse can't learn and can't form memories. So clearly the burning of glucose then is essential for laying down memories. I'll be back to that towards the end because it's becoming relevant to things like Alzheimer's. Now, the question is though, mental fatigue. Well, again, what they did was, this is only humans, impressively. They got these humans to think very, very hard and they measured the glucose burn rate. And to their surprise, it didn't go up very much. And in fact, thinking very hard, they showed, in humans, you need a tenth of a tic-tac, how about that, to provide the energy for all that thinking. So it's not as if when you're thinking hard, you're burning loads of glucose. Just a tiny bit extra is needed. So it didn't seem to be tied in to the burning of glucose. That was the first thing. But now, this scientist, Antonius Wieler in Paris, he knew this business that when you think hard, there isn't a huge increase in glucose burn. He was able to show that. Instead, what he did was he measured different neurotransmitters in the brain 
And when you think very hard, one neurotransmitter goes up a lot and it's called glutamate. And that begins to build up in the brain. And it's a fascinating thing. He, he got people, and this is done in humans, he got them to do a cognitive tasks over six hours. Right, isn't that amazing? Now again, you wonder how much he paid these people. They had to think very hard for six hours. And he got them to do various tasks and had to make decisions every so often on things. And, and he was able to measure mental fatigue in these people by their response to certain questions he gave them. He was getting to do word puzzles and all kinds of things. And how he tested their mental fatigue state was as follows, and this is the fascinating part of this. He gave them the option, you can earn 50 euros for 30 minutes of high impact exercise, or 37 euros for 30 minutes of low impact. Now, when they were feeling mentally fatigued, and he could prove this, they went for the, uh, the low impact option more often. Okay, in other words, he dropped these questions in occasionally, they would answer the question, and if they were mentally fatigued, they went for the less impactful sort of choice. Now, he didn't get them to do exercise, he was asking them to make a decision. And he used this as a way to measure their mental fatigue. They would always go for the easier option if they felt really tired. And obviously, towards the end of the six hours, they were all going for the less high impactful option, and that was the evidence that they were suffering from mental fatigue. In other words, he could measure the fatigue state in their brains using this kind of approach. It sounds a bit unusual, and the question is how robust is it but still it looked pretty robust to me when I looked at the, uh, the data next was then he did magnetic resonance spectroscopy and that's a really interesting technology it can measure these very same neurotransmitters I've been talking about in particular in the lateral prefrontal cortex and that's a part of the brain involved in hard thinking as it were and he measured neurotransmitters in that part of the brain and the bottom line to bring it right down was one neurotransmitter went through the roof when they were reporting mental fatigue now let me give it to you again it's people doing these complex cognitive tasks he measured their mental fatigue state with that option question, high impact, low impact. And then when they were going for the low impact activity, that was evidence they were mentally fatigued. And then he noticed glutamate went through the roof at that point. So high levels of glutamate were correlating with mental fatigue and that was building up in the brain. And that is the marker that you are suffering from mental fatigue. Glutamate levels climb and climb and climb. Now, the thing about this is, of course, glutamate's been tied into many different things. It's been tied into anxiety, we know already. It's been tied into aspects of learning and memory. So it makes sense that glutamate might be the signal. And that mental fatigue then made the people go, I want to stop this thinking. So it's a bit like uh, taking exercise and you stop and have a rest. The high levels of glutamate means your brain needs a rest. Stop reading, stop concentrating, just go and have a rest basically and maybe even have a bit of a nap and that can restore things. And then when you have the nap or when you go for a walk and you stop the hard thinking as it were, glutamate levels fall. So it really does correlate then with uh, mental fatigue is the idea. So in other words, they found the indicator that your brain needs to have a rest after thinking very, very hard, and it's glutamate. Now, there were two very interesting other aspects of this. Guess what alcohol does? Alcohol suppresses glutamate in the brain, and that's been known for quite a while now. And that's why you feel good on alcohol, because glutamate, as I said, it causes a feeling of anxiety. So when you drink, you suppress glutamate, and then you begin to feel less anxious. Of course, the problem is, the hangover is a glutamate rebound. So the next morning or whatever, the glutamate's been repressed, and the brain then tries to correct that and restore glutamate, but it often overshoots, and now you feel anxiety is the name for this, of course. And that seems to be caused by glutamate. And that's what we know about alcohol. But guess what? It's well known. If you're out 
for a night out with your friends. You can talk all night, sadly, for some people, of course. In other words, alcohol seems to repress mental fatigue. And that now makes sense because now we know glutamate is up in mental fatigue. We know alcohol can suppress it. And that might explain why when you're drinking, it can suppress mental fatigue and you can have a, a long night talking the whole time or whatever it might be. So that's interesting. They haven't confirmed that, by the way. That, that's something that I read that uh, sort of supports the notion that glutamate is set into mental fatigue. If we knew already that ethanol suppresses it, that might explain the effects of alcohol when we're drinking in that it's suppressing glutamate and relieving this mental fatigue and you can talk all night. And the second more serious part of this is Increasing evidence supports the notion that Alzheimer's disease is a strange sort of change in metabolism in the brain. And we know that glucose is used differently in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. And in particular, a gene called TREM2 has been linked to Alzheimer's, and that's tied into glucose metabolism. So therefore, there's something going on in Alzheimer's in that this business of concentrating and, you know, mental fatigue and all those things seem to be dysregulated in Alzheimer's, and it could be to do with glucose metabolism. And maybe it's tied into glutamate. Now, again, you can see where I'm going with this, I hope. You could possibly correct that. So in other words, if someone with Alzheimer's begins to display changes in glucose metabolism in their brain and glutamate levels aren't behaving themselves, maybe the glutamate is getting too high in an Alzheimer's person, right? How about targeting that? And as I said earlier, we know from mice, if you disrupt glucose metabolism in the brain, they can't lay down memories. So now we have another possibility to treat Alzheimer's. If you can control glucose metabolism in the brain in an Alzheimer's patient, you might prevent the memory loss. Now, maybe slow it down is the idea here by restoring these pathways and maybe lowering glutamate in a certain situation might allow memories to form more effectively. And that's a very interesting prospect because, of course, people with Alzheimer's, they can't form new memories. And maybe that's because of a metabolic difference. Now, of course, what's causing the metabolic change isn't known. We'd love to know more about this reported metabolic change in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. But again, it opens up new therapeutic prospects. So even though this seemed to be an unusual study in that can we understand mental fatigue and we understand it in terms of glutamate climbing, that's interesting anyway. But the fact is it could be useful in things like Alzheimer's to restore metabolism or at least regulate metabolism in people who are developing the symptoms of Alzheimer's and allow them to lay down memories. Of course, the other part of this is the science fictiony part. If you can target this pathway, we'll never get mental fatigue and we'll learn for hours and hours, you know, in a strange way. Cramming, it's called, maybe. But certainly this ties into memory, ties into learning, and it opens up, again, all kinds of prospects. And that's the best kind of research, of course. When a new discovery gets made, the hope is it gives rise to other researchers getting on board, developing it, finding out how it might be useful in all kinds of ways. So the role of glutamate then in mental fatigue could be very interesting for all kinds of reasons, not least in Alzheimer's disease. And of course, there might be situations where you want to increase mental endurance for whatever reason, you know, and that could be a way then to boost mental endurance in, under certain situations. So again, all kinds of spin-outs might come from this research, which is always a good, a good consequence of excellent science. Let's hope it all pans out. Of course, what happens now is other scientists try to repeat this and try to develop it. And the best science, of course, is reproducible and gives rise to all kinds of new discoveries. So I think this is a very interesting um, discovery that can open up all kinds of avenues of research in different contexts. So there you have it, the science of mental fatigue, all about glutamate. And thanks as ever for listening. And my podcast is available for download every Thursday. And it's a news talk production.